What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Father, I'd like to ask to join Duncan Idaho on a scout mission to Arrakis tomorrow. I've studied the Fremen language. I'd be an asset. Out of the question. They'll travel in a few weeks to Arrakis like the rest of us. And hey, no scout missions to Dune Part 2 either, Josh Montana. The highly anticipated sequel comes to theaters on March 1st. This week, we take another look at Part 1 of Denis Villeneuve's sci-fi epic. But I, too, have studied the Fremen language, Adam. I hear you. Oh, well. Also this week, we fill in a couple of 1950s blind spots ahead of Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 50s. That and more. Desert Power. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. What we're about to embark on here, Josh, is not a regular occurrence here on film spotting. In fact, I think it's maybe only the second time we've ever done this. I'll leave it to the film spotting historians to try to figure out the other occasion, but we're giving a second review to a recent film that we already reviewed. 2021's Dune Part 1. Oh, no. Does it, does this mean, Adam, we're reheating ourselves? <laughs> we are. Oh, boy. <laughs> we absolutely are. And it did seem, in fairness, like a lot of people were re-watching or planning to rewatch Part 1 in advance of Part 2. We thought, hey, we could be part of that conversation. Our producer, Sam, put that out on Twitter. The poll overwhelmingly came back that... Listeners, we're going to rewatch part one. And it was either that or Madam Web. <laughs> the, the only thing I'm curious about that Spider-Man adjacent movie is, mm-hmm. is it Madam Web or is it Madame Web? Okay, really good question. Now, now I have to go see it too. <laughs> Let me know. Later in the show, <laughs> later in the show, we get to a couple of 50s blind spots that we wanted to knock out ahead of film spotting madness, best of the 50s. I've seen Josh's film. He's seen my film, but... It's a bit of individual blind spotting. Tokyo story for you, Josh. Ozu, a big one to cross off. And I took a look at Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder. Which I haven't seen, actually. Oh, I thought you had. No, this was this was my my chance to see that one as well. And tried as hard as I could to do both over the weekend, but I'm afraid it's just the Ozu for me. Okay. We'll also talk through some of the play-in contests for 50s Madness 17 matchups that will determine the final 64 film bracket. You can learn more about Film Spotting Madness and vote in those matchups right now at filmspotting.net slash madness. Okay, Dune, part one, round two. It opened in theaters October 22nd, 2021, almost a year after it was originally scheduled to be released, of course, due to the pandemic. It made $41 million domestically during its opening weekend, Josh, which is about $10 million less than the Bob Marley biopic made this past weekend, just for some perspective. But to add to that perspective, pandemic-era protocols still in place in late 2021. Theaters definitely still recovering. And I don't know if you recall this, but this is also a time when Warner Brothers decided to stream many of its big movies, including Dune, on HBO Max simultaneously with its theatrical release, though I am pretty sure we made it to a big screen viewing. Yeah, Dune back yeah. in 2020. We, we saw it on the big screen, that's for sure. Dune Part 1 went on to be nominated for 10 Oscars, winning six, including for editing and for Hans Zimmer's score. No, Denis Villeneuve was not nominated for Best Director, nor were any members of the large ensemble cast. 
Let's talk about that cast. We've got Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, heir of the House Atreides. Oscar Isaac plays his father, Duke Leto Atreides. And Rebecca Ferguson is his mother, Lady Jessica, a consort of Duke Leto's. And she's also a member of the secretive Bene Gesserit, a powerful and politically influential religious group that advises the emperor. We also have Josh Brolin and Jason Momoa. They're both in the Atreides camp. Harkonnen, Stellan Skarsgård, and Dave Bautista are also along for the ride. And then on the sand planet Arrakis, home of the invaluable spice, we have Fremen, played by Javier Bardem and Zendaya. Let's get back to Chalamet and Ferguson for a moment, though, as this first part of the Dune story, a lot of screen time between the two of them, between Paul and Jessica. Here is an early scene with them. Why do we have to go through all this when it's already been decided? Ceremony? Mm. Thank you. If you want it, make me give it to you. Use the voice. Mom, I just woke up. Give me the water. The glass can't hear you. Come on, me. So we could start there, Adam, and uh, talk about this relationship, what it may have added to the narrative, to the emotional appeal of a story that is otherwise a lot of political intrigue and pseudo-spiritual techno-babble, you could say, Mm -hmm. especially for those of us who haven't read the books. You know, when this came up on Slack earlier today uh, about this relationship, you seem to scoff a little bit at, at Sam's suggestion that it was, uh, I think, an admirable aspect of the first film, I think he said. And I've been detecting, you know, in general, you liked the original Dune less than me. Let's just say it right now. Dune part one, we should say. Mm-hmm. And so I've been detecting, I, I feel a burden. I'm just going to say this. I feel a burden, Adam. Going <laughs> yeah. into part two. A Harkonnen. I, I, need, to, I need to help. On you push along your 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 dune enthusiasm i need i need to amp it up a little yeah. bit here good luck uh oh no so so the basic question i could start with in addition to what you made of that relationship mm-hmm. the second time around is are you more or less interested i'm never going to push it with the word excited interested <laughs> right. in part two after rewatching part one <laughs> i have an answer to that question i just don't totally know how to express it so maybe i can dance around back to it For now, let me say that I scoffed at what Sam said, not because I thought it was crazy or that liking that relationship and how it's portrayed is something silly. It was just really a matter of wanting to understand what he meant by the word admirable as opposed to other terms of praise. So I got that clarification. But to set up what I am going to dive into here, Josh, and it works out well because I really wanted to talk about this. I wanted to talk about this relationship. Didn't know that's where we were going to start, but it's where I wanted to start. I do need to provide some context. My Dune 2021 review was one of those where it got a muted three stars out of five on Letterboxd. Most of my reaction, that means I liked it, but most of my reaction was spent dealing with all the things it didn't do to earn more enthusiasm. And it turns out that 
2021 me and 2024 me pretty much saw the same movie. Only 2024 me liked it a little bit less. I, I really hmm. should just be able to feed the AI everything I said in 2021, all my audio, and then just let it come up with new ways to phrase it. And you guys can go at it and I can just go get a drink. I mean, you could try that. <laughs> I could try that, right? Probably the technology is there to pull that off. So I will say these three things up front, even though no one's going to remember them in five minutes or 50 minutes. I still do appreciate how Villeneuve presents such a clear streamlined narrative, considering the source material or so I've heard and Lynch's interesting challenged adaptation, which we have talked about here on the show. I will note that, of course, it's a little bit of a cheat because he divides it into at least two parts, but it's easy to think that this material could be 10 to 12 episodes of hour-long TV. So the fact that I followed it to the extent that I did, I'm going to say that's a win. I still really appreciate the world building. And by world building here, I really mean the physical construction of it, the production design, the art direction, the costumes, the makeup, everything that makes it tangible. Or to use another T word, I know from your letterbox blurb, Josh, that you're going to dive into this more, but it's a word we both used last time we talked about this movie, and it absolutely applies. There is a true tactility to Dune that many other films working in this milieu simply don't achieve. And I also still appreciate the work, generally, of the wonderfully cast ensemble, even if that does help me transition into something I praised last time according to my notes, that was a little bit on the other side of the ledger this time. And it does happen to involve our, our dear mother, Lady Jessica. For some context here, last time I was critical of the Zendaya-Chalamet relationship, I thought it was a problem, or I said then it's a problem that would be solved, surely in part two, but it still leaves it to be a problem in part one, which is these visions of Zendaya. And that really being all she is, even after we finally meet her, I just, I just felt an emptiness about that, that relationship and a lack of connection. You see them in these visions, kissing or being intimate. You hear what we're told is a love that's growing. I, I certainly never felt it. You don't ever really see Paul express it. He's kind of just a bystander or he's kind of someone who's just observing himself. And you never you never really feel that relationship. At least I didn't. We have to be told all of that because for me, nothing like it's actually being generated on screen. I was thinking about, you know, those Gen Z comments that pop up on social media too frequently these days where they're angsty about sex occurring in movies and TV. Well, Dune Part One seems perfect for them <laughs> because and contradicting what I said last time, I suspect Dune two will be more of the same. There's not only no sex here, there's nothing remotely suggesting heat or sensuality between them or anyone else in the movie for that matter. For me, I said the trade-off though, the trade-off for that is Ferguson's Jessica, Rebecca Ferguson's character as a partner slash wife, as a mother, as a seer, the way she balances all of those roles now, maybe that was me giving Dune points for casting Ferguson because watching her since watching her for the first time in whatever Mission Impossible movie it was, I have loved her as a screen presence. I think she instantly brings credibility and weight and elevates a scene. She has a real fierce intellect and emotion that comes through. She's definitely not the issue. I think Lady Jessica is almost surely the most interesting complex character in the movie. 
because of the way she has to juggle all of those things. And maybe, maybe that's just my problem with it, Josh, in short, that it's undeniably Paul Atreides' movie, her son's movie, and I'm never as interested in what he's thinking as I am with her and what she's thinking. And let me give you a, a scene that did stand out to me and felt different to me this time. I don't think I fully grasped the emotional weight last time of the scene with Charlotte Rampling, where Paul is being tested by the Benny Gesserit. Her response and what she's experiencing internally, bringing him into that room and standing outside it, isn't just a mother who knows her son is feeling tremendous pain or that her, her secret defiance of the order, teaching her son the way, is known and is being scrutinized. It's very realistic that she could be sending her son to his death. She's literally bringing him to death's door. My takeaway this time was that Charlotte Rampling, as mother Benny Gesserit and her, her crew, would kill him if he doesn't pass, as she says anyway, if we take her at her word, that she would kill him if they felt that he wasn't worthy. So there's, there's a true sense that he might not emerge from that room if she wasn't sufficiently impressed with him. So that's something that, that hit differently this time. But once the attack happens by the Harkonnen and she and Paul hit the desert, she's mostly reduced to a mother following her suddenly highly capable son around and saying and doing very little. Even the duel that comes later that her son has to participate in, we think about what was made earlier about her and what we see in her face. We know that she is determined only to protect her son. She's just oddly completely on the sidelines. She has one line. Otherwise, she's an onlooker through that entire event and everything leading up to it. Well, she initially she initially fights, though. Yeah, well, she she fights when they have to survive in the moment. Yes, but that's that's different in terms of how it's actually attached to to this whole story. Is really my I, my I, point. Well, go so, ahead. Yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. So I, you know, does does Villeneuve have a blind spot when it comes to his female characters? Does the entire movie rest on the agency of Lady Jessica, and it is a bad movie because I think she's wasted? Maybe not ready to weigh in on the first part, and definitely not. But. My point is, this was first a disappointment that was new on this rewatch, and more significantly, it represented for me a hollowness at the core of the movie surrounding all of the characterizations. Dune harnesses a formidable ensemble of talent, all dutifully advancing the plot and the franchise, but providing little in the way of dramatic stakes. And I I think it's true not just of that relationship, but of Isaac and Chalamet as father-son as well. Yeah, these are all strengths to me of the movie. I mean, all these relationships and the characterizations and the performances, honestly, um, you know, it's it's not quite at the level of something like Lord of the Rings. I thought a lot about Lord of the Rings while while watching it the second time. I forget if that came up at all in our original review. I'm sure it has in other, you know, in other contexts. But, you know, when we revisited those films, we both responded to especially the performances and the Shakespearean quality that they had. I don't think Dune is up to that level, but I think it's closer to that than something like, let's take a more recent sci-fi film, um, The Creator, which we both praised for that tactility it had. Mm -hmm. And I think it stood out to us from other sci-fi pictures of recent years because it had what Dune has. You believed in this world, but you didn't, for me at least, and I think you felt the same. We didn't believe in the narrative. The performances, you know, John David Washington working hard, but it's not quite clicking. I know you like the child That's performance. That's what I definitely like more than Yeah, you, you like the yeah. child performance much more yeah. than me. 
Um, and here, this was my experience with Dune. And again, when Sam used that word admirable, I thought it, it was admirable to make this mother-son dynamic such a focus to this movie as much as it is. I think that struck me as one of the impressive things about uh, Dune Part 1 revisiting it. I knew that was an element of the movie that I liked. I knew those were both performances I liked. Ferguson more than Chalamet. But again, I think Chalamet holds his own within this context. And um, I'm watching it realizing, oh, that's right. This is essentially what this part of the story is about. And the scene you talked about, that's why I wanted to jump in when you skipped over the fact that she actually fights, like has that fight before, because it's the moment of transfer. This is what this larger narrative is doing. She She tries to take charge, defend her son, be that protective mother. But the narrative has now reached the point where he is stepping into his own. And I have qualms about what that's going to look like for him. We touched on the whole white savior element of this narrative and being curious about how that's going to play out in part two. But in terms of how it works in part one, I thought it was crucial that she then steps back and he takes part in that duel on her behalf because this is this is the maturation process this is this is what he has been designed and i use that word specifically mm-hmm. because she and the bene Gesserit have you know orchestrated this over generations we're told to get to someone like paul who might be this messianic figure and so to your point of what you were um, saying earlier about her realization of what this means, I think that's absolutely crucial because in her mind, Paul was always a goal, it, not a person, let alone a person she would come to raise and love. And now is when all those things are colliding. And eventually at the end of part one, it's where she is going to have to release any sort of control and he is going to have to step forward. So I think it's actually a crucial turning point for the narrative rather than a flaw to this installment. Yeah, well, that scene in and of itself is indicative of something I was noticing even before that point. I feel like she's transferred a lot of that control already to him. And and that's the part that I also think is a little too quickly developed in terms of his character. And the part we agree on is because it's set up so well, and you feel like this relationship is going to be so crucial to the movie, the fact that I'm I'm watching her mostly watch her son for the rest of the film is something that didn't sit well with me, but it didn't sit well with me just from a from a dramatic standpoint more than anything. And The Lord of the Rings is the right comparison here, mainly because I do always think of that as the first movie I remember seeing anyway that left you with that cliffhanger feeling that this movie does after, you know, almost three hours of of watching it and getting invested in it, which I was very invested in that first Lord of the Rings, and feeling like, okay, it's incomplete, but it's had enough of its own arc that I also feel satisfied. And this movie, of course, I'll say, of course, because it sounds like you might agree with me, it really doesn't come anywhere anywhere close to that. I would agree with that for sure. And this is, you know, it's one of the miracles of fellowship of the ring. It's, it's a cliffhanger that has closure and that's 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 a very hard, uh, yeah. Needle to thread. Yeah, that's it. And as Sam and I were talking about this a little bit more privately, you know, today on Slack, I agree with something he said. And that I think a lot of people would say probably in response to me, which is that, you know, the cast though does such a good job and the writing's strong enough and, and Villeneuve, the world building is strong enough that even if 
you don't maybe get as much with these people as you would like. And that might be even just because you enjoy the performances and the characters want to spend more time with them and the movie has to get on to other things. You always feel like you still understand the relationships. And I agree with that. I understand the relationships for all of those reasons. It's not so much about understanding the relationships or feeling like they they don't give me enough to to latch on to, at least initially, but it's about character development. And I know we're just not going to see it this way, but I just want to make sure I'm articulating this right. It's about character development in the service of heightening and making more complex the ideas and themes that are being drawn out by this story. And of course, I'll use the word again, establishing the stakes. And for me, this goes back to your key question here. And so I really want to know how you feel about this, Josh. I don't know what anyone goes into part two after seeing this movie. What do you go into part two wondering about, worrying about, needing an answer to, needing a resolution to beyond, I guess, the question, will Paul fulfill his destiny, which is is so rote at this point that that's a snooze for me. And that's all I can really come up with with this film, honestly. And if if someone's going to say, no, there's there's all this stuff about, you know, even is he going to is he going to fall in line with what his dad's expectations were and the ambitions? Well, you know, that's all part of fulfilling his destiny, but it, it's not developed well enough either. He he is, says it early on as if he's against his father and his worldview, but then pretty much just falls in line with daddy and starts to approach what his father expected of him. So I just really don't know what we are going to get from part two or what I care to see play out in part two. But but the complicated answer I said earlier, I didn't really know how to express it is just that on one hand, I say all that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, that makes me more curious for part two. <laughs> it makes me more curious for part two to see now how Villeneuve is going to make all of this hopefully more compelling. And, and if not, Give me interesting resolution or tie together the things that are just, I think, kind of skimmed over in part one. Is he going to open this world up and open up these these ideas and themes somehow that's really going to connect with me? Yeah, it's a fair question. And I think that's where my uh, thoughts went to as well. The opening of the world, particularly as it deals with the Fremen, because we see hints of their um, their culture how they live, where they live, but not a lot of it. And for me, I think this is this is the fundamental difference we've had with part one and probably will throughout this series, which just, just so we know, because neither of us knew going into the last Dune that it was going to be a cliffhanger. Like we have two more of these at least, right? Yeah. There's going to, this no, is it does two say and then there's going to be part three. I, I look, Did we miss it in the title though? Cause it says Dune part one. It does, but we, I think we talked about this where yeah. at least I thought it just meant it was going to be one movie broken oh, into parts. Yes. Yeah. Right? I might've so, had the same thought. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, for me, I think for you, right. you're very um, invested in the narrative and how the story itself is grabbing is going mm -hmm. to grab you. And that's part of it for me, but maybe because this is, I think it's fair to use the word rote when you're talking about a character like Paul Atreides, but also this comes back to the tactility. What Villeneuve accomplished with this and what he's done in just about all of his sci-fi related pictures for sure um, is this sensory experience. That is what excited me about my initial experience with Dune part one. That is what I'm most excited about when it comes to part two. I cannot wait, especially having revisited part one at home, cannot wait 
to get into a huge dark space and just see how it's going to sound, what it's going to look like, and tied to the narrative, I think connected with that is this idea of the Fremen. And I'm much more interested in what does this indigenous culture who has had, as I think the first lines of part one say, you know, who, who will be our next oppressors, has endured so many colonial empires. What is this stage in their history going to look like where, where chaos has visited them um, yet again, but it seems to be a different chaos where these, these warring, rather than being one house that is now ruling over them, there are these warring houses on their planet. Um, I want to see, again, I want to see these, I forget the name, but whatever the name is for the, the underground layers that they live in. What is the sieges? Yeah. Thank you. Sieges. I want to mm-hmm. see what Villeneuve and his production team do with that. What, what did, what does it sound like to be in one of those things? And maybe that's, maybe that sounds like, you know, not enough for a movie going experience, but for me, it can be when it's in the ha- creative hands of uh, a director and a filmmaking team, artists, that he has. So I think that's where I'm going. I agree with you about Paul Atreides. Here was my experience with revisiting part one. Not only did I wish I was in a theater, as I said, but man, even when it began, I was like, oh, I underrated this. This is this is so great. I had the time to look more in the corners of of these vast living spaces and so forth that that they had, even on the Atreides home planet, you know, just just watching where we were going in their castles and so forth. And I thought, man, I underrated this thing, but it does tend to peter out the more it starts revolving around Paul's specific narrative. And I want mm-hmm. to separate that from his relationship with his mother. Cause I do think that's a, a strength all the way through the end of the first film. But once we did get more to this, like, is he the one and, Every time one of the Fremen would whisper, well, he does, he seems too young or, you know, this yeah. is, this is very familiar mythological yeah. material. And so I see where you're coming from in that. And I agree with that. And if this movie was not as brilliantly conceived in almost every other area, that probably would have bothered me more. But my experience did peter out. Like, but I would say by the time part one ended, I was, I'm, I'm still, as I said, very excited to get in a the theater to see this, but I was less excited than I was tw- 20 minutes in shall we say. So I don't think back to the fellowship of the ring comparison. I don't think it manages to hit that note where part one leaves us. And maybe that's it. I I don't want to deny anything I'm trying to express here, but sometimes when it comes down to it, and if you think back to what was different about this rewatch versus the first watch, and besides being somewhat more familiar, obviously with the material, it's also that I saw that in a theater. As we said, we saw it on the big screen and I could have more of that sensory experience with it. And when the world building is so tactile and great here and the performances are really fun to watch and all of those things contribute to really being immersed in a film, that was what was different, right? And now I'm watching it on my couch and and I can't be as consumed by some of those elements. I know we did talk during the 2021 review about the very obvious parallels here to imperialism and these oppressors of the Fremen, how it just keeps changing hands. You can, you can really just, you could take a drink every time something comes up and you know exactly what it's, what it's referencing, what it's real life connection is a few things though, that I hadn't really caught on to Josh that first time would include the father, the Oscar Isaac character, who again, I don't feel like we get enough time with, I know he 
I know there's a reason behind part of that. I still don't feel like they develop that that conflict and that tension quite well enough. But I really like the way as regal naturally as Oscar Isaac is, as much of a presence that he always brings to any film and, and a sort of gravitas. I like that he's not weak here at all, but he's really human. They seem yeah. to really want to stress his humanity, and it's in He's unsure. subtle things. He's unsure. There's subtle things like that that beat that punctuates the transfer of power. A lot of films would have had this ceremonial pomp and circumstance. It would have been all about it and us just sort of swooning in what's happening, and it ends with him going something like, so that's it? Okay, now I'm in charge. Is this over? You know, is is basically what he what he says. And the way he speaks, there's a key scene where he he says something that that clearly shows that there is there is that lack of assurance or there's that doubt in his voice. So that was something again I hadn't quite caught on to the first time that I liked here and and wish that maybe more had been done with it. But I also I also noticed and it was so obvious, it was right there, but I don't think I commented on it last time. The way the the Baron Harkonnen, Stellan Skarsgård, the way he eventually just emerges out of the ooze, the black ooze that is oil. Sure. Of course, it's meant exactly to be oil. And I don't want to embarrass myself, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this back on you. What insect would you say is the model for the ships that the the House Atreides fly around in? On I mean, Arrakis? I, a dragonfly is what yeah, I would it think. Looks, it kind of looks like a dragonfly, yeah. and, and maybe maybe that ruins what I'm going to say here. Maybe this doesn't totally work. Dragonflies, or or even just thinking about them as flies buzzing around, buzzing around this land that isn't theirs, like flies, you know, just kind of their own sort of miniature buzzards, you know, exploiting uh, and living off of the the land and the people that are indigenous to that place. So there were some there were some touches like that that stood out and I'm going to give it back to you with this thought on the the tactility. It it's not just all of the things we've already touched on. I think it's the balance where and here I am this is going to be the second or third show here recently where I've become social meme guy but it just occurred to me because I heard someone on a podcast say it today. Sometimes I don't get into squabbles like this, fortunately, but sometimes when people are arguing on the internet or someone really seems to be lost in their, their keyboard, people will say something like touch grass, you know, like you need to go outside and reconnect with the real world, bring it back. Actually, that's what Villeneuve does so well in this film, right? Is, is it is this overwhelming spectacle, this very mechanical machine driven sci-fi world. And then he very frequently takes time to give us natural elements mm -hmm. like the mouse, the mouse in the desert mm -hmm. that that just like them in their suits needs to rely on his own sweat that you would never otherwise even think about or conceive of needs its own sweat in order to survive the whole thing around the palm tree. Yeah, I know we talked about that. That's we talked about that last touch. time. It's a great touch. And here's what I didn't really, I don't think dove into last time, but I realized that, it doesn't just add that natural element. It it also poses a really nice symbolic conundrum for what should be Paul's internal conflict. The whole thing we're, we're supposed to be watching play out, I think, right? Which is, it's also really a, a nice symbol of Paul's entire journey or what should be his entire conflict, which is this idea that 
these these trees, these palm trees that are so out of place there take a tremendous amount of water to sustain and keep alive. And that that character, the the kind of gardener character who basically devotes himself to pouring all that water, he says to Chalamet's character, he says to Paul, it takes, you know, however many men, the the equal of this many men, their water to to keep these these trees alive. And as you would expect, Paul asks the question, well, should we get rid of them? Is it worth it? And this central conundrum then is this idea that you can easily say, well, of course, of course they should be if we weigh them in a practical sense, if we even weigh them in terms of the the cost, the the human labor that goes into it. But then, of course, the guy also explains, but there is something larger. There, there is there is something of of greater importance. They stand for something. They they mean something, and those symbols are really important, and we need them. He doesn't say all that, but it, he much more eloquently with one line expresses that. But the idea for me, Josh, was was tying that back to Paul's character a little bit, where he has to make these decisions that are that are life and death decisions about his about his future, and he's going to have to make sacrifices that are going to be incredibly tough decisions, but are they in service of, of a greater good? Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a strength of Chalmay's performances. I felt that consternation going on inside him again. I think it's a good performance. I don't, I don't think if you were ranking all the performances in this film that it's up at the top, but my main concern was that he would stand out and be odd in this milieu. And I don't think he is, but I do think you recognize him weighing all of these decisions, not only as individual decisions, but also the weight of knowing they will soon be his. And they do become his sooner than he expected. I think that relates back to the transfer um, from his mother, you know, of, of kind of leading the way from the mother to the son because things transfer from the father to the son. And so this is he's being forced out. Um, but, yeah, I th- so I think that's a great scene with the palm trees because it works on a thematic level, as you're saying, a great character moment for Chalamet. And also back to this idea of this is a world we can imagine walking around in um, when when Paul is told you shouldn't be out here this time of day. Um, you know, it gives us a sense of how hot it must be, how blazing the sun must be. Um, these are all the things that make it feel like this Arrakis we could actually visit. It doesn't exist on a soundstage somewhere and it doesn't exist in a computer somewhere. It actually is out there in outer space. Dune is on HBO Max and Netflix, but only on Netflix through the end of the month. It's also available VOD. If you have any thoughts about the film, maybe you also revisited it recently. We would love to hear your reaction to our reaction. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If you've been listening to Film Spotting for a while and you'd like to help us out, here's an easy way. Take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Each one of these does help us reach new listeners. You can also support us by joining the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. As you've mentioned recently, Adam, we are a completely independent production. So going back to the start of the show, it was listener support that enabled us to keep producing episodes. That's still the case today. And the easiest way to do that is to join the Film Spotting family. If you do that, you can listen early and ad-free. You will also get Sam's weekly newsletter. Monthly bonus shows will come your way, including the one we just recorded last week. This was 
a call with our film spotting advisory board. That is that is the high tier of the film spotting family, the folks who weigh in, help us make decisions about the show. And we got on to talk to them about film spotting madness, best of the 1950s. They they threw a little bit of a wrench in some of the bracket, uh, Adam. You and Sam yes. had, a, had a plan and we got uh-huh. some good feedback and had to do a little <laughs> rethinking, I, I believe. That's right. That's accurate. That show is out now. For all Film Spotting family members, only the FAB got to participate in the call live and weigh in. And of course, their voices are also part of that show. But as we're going to be talking about Film Spotting Madness in a little bit, it was fun to throw some questions at them, even if they then opened up more questions for us as the selection committee. And we got some clarity on a few things in terms of a few films we were wondering if they really needed to be in or or should remain on the outside. So always fun. We do those quarterly, those film spotting advisory board meetings. They get that along with other benefits. And all family members have the choice of getting those monthly bonus shows or getting complete archive access. And just one quick note, you made me think of something that I think Sam just said recently, maybe on a call when it was just the three of us, but we were talking about this. And it's funny to think about back in 2005 when film spotting started, when Sam and I started the show and the notion of monetizing a podcast, that was not a phrase anyone used. Of course, <laughs> there, were no, no. there were no ad <laughs> platforms and no one had really a vision for that. We were just we were just focused on getting a show done every week and trying to make them as professional and as smart as possible and good sounding and trying to attract new listeners who actually wanted to hear what we had to say about movies and the whole listener supported thing. It just started Josh. Like this is how innocent a time it was. We never once mentioned, Hey, if you want us to keep doing this, we really need money or join this membership program or whatever. The word PayPal, I don't believe was ever thrown out until several months went by of listeners just randomly sending us money. Can you imagine that? But people just sent us via PayPal. They found our email and they said, I I want this show to keep going. Maybe this will help. And they just sent us money. And for the first few years of this show, that's that's what got us through. That's what paid for everything. We have a lot more expenses now to keep the show running, but that that listener support has always been so crucial. And now hopefully, if you want to give us some money, if you want to support the show in a monetary way, you also get some actual benefits for it filmspottingfamily.com and the Oscar goes to everything everywhere all at once best picture winner everything everywhere all at once if we didn't have that clip in front of us and that title would you even remember Josh that it won best picture do you remember which film you thought was going to win best picture last year I think I would have remembered that it won. I have no idea who I picked. I don't either. I'm just going to say I predicted it. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) And I know I could click the link in our archive and look at the top five list, but that would spoil the fun. Let's not do that. I have no idea either what I thought. The Oscars are coming up Sunday, March 10th. Next week, we'll provide you with a whole lot of information that won't help you win your Oscars bracket at all. Joining us, we expect, as always, he hasn't he hasn't confirmed yet, Josh. He hasn't confirmed. Oh, I don't man. know who we would get wow. to fill his shoes, the big shoes of Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Is he taking other bids? I mean, are, are we in a bidding war here? He, he might be. Oh, he no. He might be. 
And we'd have to increase that bid. I'm apparently. trying to think what, what did I say to him in LA? We we, we hung out <laughs> quite a bit. I don't I don't think I insulted that him. That last night it was great. We had a great dinner, great oh, show. Oh boy. Yeah, who knows? Our picks for who will win, who should win, and who should have been nominated because apparently we're really mean and we want to say mean things about people who got Oscar nominations, but really it's because at our core we're pragmatists. And if we're going to throw in someone who should have been nominated, well, then we're kicking somebody out. That's right. We're not, we're not just messing around. We're taking this seriously, Adam, this Oscar yes. business. Uh-huh. Also next week, the official start of Film Spotting Madness. Now, best of the 1950s, we're still going to get the theme this week. You better believe it because play-ins are live. More on that in a second. And more on madness at filmspotting.net slash madness. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you have more than the usual reasons to listen in. Not only do they have a great pairing, Molly Manning Walker's How to Have Sex that we just added to the shortlist, Adam, for our Golden Brick Award on the show last week. They're pairing that with 1960's Where the Boys Are, directed by Henry Levin. Uh, Apparently, this movie is new to me, but this is about some Midwestern college-age good girls who drive to Fort Lauderdale for spring break. Mm. Okay, intriguing pairing, but how about this? In addition to the great regular hosts on the next picture show, they'll be joined by Mariah Gates, friend of the show. She's been on a number of film spotting episodes, including most recently our top 10 roundtable. That is the next picture show. It's available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Just good. If the most you ever lost is two thirds of all films directed by the Cone Brothers, then I guess you decided to take part in the latest deeply flawed film spotting poll. The question invites you, invites such a terrible word to use there, to keep one Cone Brothers decade and just one. But no, no, it's not the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s or even the 2010s. It is 85 to 95. 96 to 2006 or 07 to 2018. And I do want to clarify this here. I misspoke. Well, really, I misspoke both times that we talked about this, the last two shows. But the first show in particular, I got confused based on what Sam was putting on the page. I thought we were going with 10-year spans. It had to be. We were being you know, very draconian about 10-year spans, which meant it was 07 to 2017 And the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I think was 18, that's why it goes to 18, wouldn't be eligible. And I also thought that made sense because then it balanced out, you know, that first decade, 85 to 95 is five movies and 96 to 2006 is six movies. 97 to 2018 would actually be seven films. So a little bit imbalanced. So I thought Sam was kicking Buster Scruggs out. And yet, Josh, I still voted for that more recent decade even thinking that Buster Scruggs wasn't on the table. Turns out it was. It's 07 to 2018. Sam wanted to include all of their films as the Cone Brothers. And you can keep all seven of those movies. Maybe that had something to do with the results, just sheer quantity. I'm going to guess it was more about quality, though. How did it come out? So in last place, with 22% of the vote, is 85 to 95. So we're looking at Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, and the Hudsucker Proxy. They all landed in last place. Second place, 
went to 96 to 2006. 38% of the vote here. Fargo, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, and The Lady Killer. So all that means that, I don't know, maybe it was a Buster Scruggs bump, but yes, 07 to 2018 took the poll with 40% of the vote. Here's what we have. No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, Hail Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Adam, I did finally force myself to do this, and I am with you. I am also yeah. with you in voting 07 to 2018, regardless of what happened with Buster Scruggs. I okay. like it. It is not among you know, my top-tier Coens by any stretch. But yeah, when I looked at that ranked list I have on Letterboxd and then looked back at these poll options, it actually became kind of easy. In, in my top five Coens, I have No Country. I have True Grit, and I have Hail Caesar. Now, that's a little strange. Most people would say, where's a serious man? Where's Inside Lewin <laughs> Davis, right? And those yeah. are, and no, yeah. those are no up country. there. But okay. yeah, No Country, alone with No Country, True Grit, and for me, Hail Caesar, that elevated that last group. So I'm with you. I'm with where most voters yeah. went. 07 to 2018, their greatest, strangely aligned decade. I'm guessing it's not the Buster Scruggs bump. It's really more about No Country for Old Men and probably a few other titles mentioned. It did come out pretty close, though, Josh, right? I mean, you don't do a ton of polls that are only three options, but not only is it 40 to 38, but 22 percent for 85 to 95. So, yeah, this caused a lot of consternation amongst our audience. Let's hear about it. Here's Sven Britt, who says, having seen Sam's original Twitter poll, just going by straight decades, I was desperately hoping that he would do exactly this tweak to the question. That said, while it unquestionably makes it more interesting for the vast majority of people, I'm not one of them. Maybe it's just that I'm a struggling musician. Is there any other kind? But you wouldn't even need No Country in the last group to swing my vote. Lewin is going to get my vote no matter what films it's grouped with. So while this poll remains personally boring and easy, I'm eager to see responses from people who had to take more than a second to decide. They're bound to be more interesting than my response, since you could ask me if Lewin or the rest of their filmography goes into the incinerator, and I'd hold on to Lewin as seemingly inexplicably as he holds on to that cat. All right. So inside Lewin Davis, the ringer for Sven. It it didn't Mm -hmm. matter where it was placed. This one, I don't know what Q-Ball is telling us here. Just just wrote in Miller's Crossing, Fargo, and Inside Lewin Davis are my three favorite Coen Brothers films. Many exclamation points, many question marks, obviously. Yeah. That well, puts one, one from in each, each decade. Each decade. Yeah. I did Q-Ball vote? Did did they have a stroke? What, yeah. what what's happening here? <laughs> Maybe yes to the stroke. I hope you're doing okay, Q-Ball. But like you, Josh, it seems that he or she just decided to take this one off. Well, I eventually voted. So come on, Mm -hmm. It Get well and cast your vote. It took you two weeks, but that's fine. Here's Kathy ranking. As most are saying, this is a tough call indeed, but I just can't get out of my head the memory of sitting in a theater in the mid 80s and seeing Blood Simple for the first time. Seemed revolutionary. Same with Raising Arizona. I was writing screenplays at the time and also was a first time mother. So Arizona hit me hard. I found myself praying that I could write a comedy about family, motherhood, and all the mess that entails as good as this one. The Cone brothers together and individually have continued to inspire me, move me, and make me feel less than because they are so damn good. Wow. Seeing Blood Simple in a theater upon first release. You were lucky, Kathy. Here's Bryant Cottrell. People can say what they want to say, but I need the big Lebowski like I need air in my lungs. <laughs> Here's Nathan who says, it does come down to simple math. The last decade decade in quotes, has the most films at seven. 
compared to five or six for the first two, respectively. More Cone Brothers equals better. Hard to argue with. It is hard to argue with that. One last note here from Jordan Jersick. This exercise is like picking the best Springsteen album. Do you pick the one that announced a major talent in a big way? Greetings. The one with the highest highs, born to run. The one that's wall-to-wall bangers, born in the USA. You can't go wrong. The categorical comparisons aren't one-to-one, but I know what makes the best run for me. It's one with only bangers. For the Coens, that's decade number one. If they'd stop there, we would all look back at their filmography and marvel at its consistent greatness. Well said, Jordan, but where are you putting Nebraska? That's what I want to know. Thanks to everyone who voted and left a comment. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. 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 But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! There it is. We are back to Sparta. It's time for the ninth annual Film Spotting Madness. The films of the 1950s, Josh. Such a beautiful place this time of year. It is. This is a decade-by-decade project we started back in 18 with the best of the 90s. I mean, Madness, as we said, nine years goes back before that. But this recent incarnation goes back to 2018. We did the best of the 90s, went forward, 2000s, 2010s, and then we went back to the 80s, the 70s. Last year, it was the 1960s. So if you're going in order, 2001, The Godfather, Do the Right Thing, Fargo, There Will Be Blood and Parasite. I think we did okay. Yeah, that looks pretty good to me. It looks pretty good. What will listeners crown the best film of the 1950s? What movie will be added to that pretty good sounding list? Well, we won't learn that until sometime in April. We do one round per week starting next week. This week, it's it's the pre-tournament. It's the play-ins. Because we don't like to leave movies out and like to expose people to as many of these great films as possible, we have a lot of films that are vying for contention in the big dance. So 17 matchups here. To vote, all you have to do is go to filmspotting.net or filmspotting.net slash madness. Timing-wise, regardless of when you're hearing this show, a new round starts every Monday and goes until the following Monday. We also... Starting next week, we'll have our bracket contest that you can take part in. So just like March Madness, you want to play along, you want to fill out a bracket, you want to win a great film spotting prize or prizes, you can participate. Sign up for that starting on the 26th. Again, filmspotting.net right there on the main page or filmspotting.net slash madness. Now I realize as we look at the play-ins, this is the first time you're seeing some of these matchups, maybe all of them. Josh, some of them. I took a peek. I, I had oh, you took I a had peek. a couple minutes earlier today before I had to run some errands. I took a peek. So yeah, okay. I, I would I would say nothing as horrifying as Madness usually gets. Some difficult mm-hmm. choices, but it, the ones I saw, I thought, okay, I know where I'm going with this. Okay, so we're not going to go through them title by title. You can go to filmspotting.net again slash Madness, but just for all of our listeners to know what films we're talking about in terms of the groupings, how we have paired these movies together. We have a Cirque play-in, a Nicholas Ray play-in, a Hucksters play-in, sci-fi, Disney, bogey, noir, Brisson, Hollywood, George Stevens, Marathon Discoveries, so two films we recently saw for the first time as part of film spotting marathons, a Tati poll, Paris musicals, French crime, Hitchcock. 
Rosalini Bergman, and finally, Palm Door winners. So Josh, hit me. Of those 17, give me a few that were maybe really easy and give me a few that were really hard. All right. So I'm going to start with the Disney pairing because I think on first glance, people might say this is easy. You know, Cinderella versus Sleeping Beauty. Cinderella it has a larger place in the cultural consciousness. I just want to say don't sleep on either of these. I think in general, both are maybe considered middle tier Disney animated efforts. I think they are both great. You know, you think about Cinderella and uh, you've got the birds and the mice helping make Cinderella's gown. You've got the pumpkin carriage, fairy godmother, all this iconic stuff. Yet, despite Eleanor Audley's, she has that cruel purr as the evil stepmother. I'm going with Sleeping Beauty in this in this matchup because it has Maleficent, also voiced by Eleanor Audley, one of the great Disney villains. I had it at number four when Tasha Robinson and I did that list a number of years ago. So yeah, the Sleeping Beauty versus Cinderella, both great films, but for me, it is Sleeping Beauty. So I'll just jump in there because that's on my easy list, though there's nothing really easy about this. I will provide the backstory here. I'm going with Cinderella and it's really not fair because I haven't had a chance to rewatch these movies and I'm a terrible father apparently and don't recall watching either of these movies with any of my kids. I don't think I've seen either of these films, Josh, since I was five to eight years old. Mm. But I'm going with Cinderella just because of how largely it still looms in my mind. I really believe that I saw it once in the theater and then probably a few times after that as a kid. And I still feel like I remember every scene of that film. And again, it's been quite a long time. And I know I've told the story before. I think it is the first movie I ever saw in the movie theater. Star Wars may have actually been my first movie ever at the drive-in. Very vividly remember that. But in a movie theater, growing up in Grinnell, I remember going for the first time to the theater to see Cinderella. And I love it. So it's probably not fair. Sleeping Beauty, if I watch them both right now, I might think Sleeping Beauty is the better film. Without that time to rewatch them, I'm going with the one that was more formative. I'm going with Cinderella. Yeah. You can't vote against the first film you saw in a theater. No way. But here's one I found quite difficult, I'll say, and probably was for you, I think, maybe not, but the Brisson pairing. Yep. So Diary of a Country Priest versus Pickpocket. Basically, what you've got here is, is Brisson doing textual theology. It's all there in the story with Priest. It's there in the title, right? And then in Pickpocket, he's doing subtextual theology. It's all what this character and his experience represents. And I got I got to say, I normally prefer the latter. I mean, I, I, I wrote a book, Movies Are Prayers, that almost 95% spends time on films that do not have an explicitly religious context. So that's that's what really gets my mind worrying. But I can't deny the power of one of the great crisis of faith masterpieces that cinema has given us. So as hard as this is, and as much as my instincts usually go the other way, I did land at Diary of a Country Priest for this one. So we went the same way on this one. And yes, it was one of my tough choices here. I went back and looked at our marathon page. We haven't given star ratings on the page in a long time. And I know we don't do that kind of deliberately, even though we do it on Letterboxd. I know you do it on your site because we usually talk about the films and on the air don't give star ratings. But the case for it has always been more of a reference point for us to go back and just at quick yes. glance, remind yourself how totally. you felt about a film. And I was sure that my star rating for Diary of a Country Priest was higher than Pickpocket. I gave them both four stars. I think I gave everything in that marathon at least four stars. So 
I think I just have to go with the one that was my entree here again. I'm going with the one that was my entree to Brisson. It was the first film in that marathon. Mm -hmm. And I know Paul Schrader cribs liberally from both of these films throughout his work, but that, that recent, what is it? Man at a desk. What do we call those films? Yeah. Something like that. The man at a desk films writing in that diary, these men having these crises of faith all began with, with Ethan Hawke in first reformed the one that, most blatantly pulls from Diary of a Country Priest, I think. Those films I've enjoyed, maybe the wrong word. I've enjoyed wrestling with those films, those Schrader films. And it's especially Diary of a Country Priest, as I think of as the tentpole film or the the totem for those movies. So I'm going with Diary. So here was a hard one for me. In a Lonely Place versus Johnny Guitar. And you know, Lonely Place, I probably saw both of these for the first time within the last maybe five, surely 10 years. So so relatively recent watches. And Lonely Place is definitely this creepily strange little noir entry. I, I actually read the book it was based on for this and loved that as well. It's got a good performance by Humphrey Bogart in it, a delicious performance from Gloria Graham. But Johnny Guitar is such a singular achievement. And this is one of those titles I hope Madness pushes folks to check out and watch if they haven't seen it before. Just the disruption of gender roles going on in this sort of pseudo-Western. I mean, it's a Western, but it's not unlike any other Western you've seen, really. You've got Joan Crawford strapping on a gun belt, immediately making you wonder why this movie was not named after her character, the saloon owner of Vienna. So, so yeah, I, I went with Johnny Guitar eventually because it's it's um, maybe a little more, it's disrupting things a little more than In a Lonely Place does, but they're both great. Yeah, you're calling out one of my embarrassments, one of the polls, Josh, that I can't vote in as we are taping this right now because I haven't seen Johnny Guitar have long wanted to, and this will be the impetus finally, but it's not homework I was able to do in the prior weeks leading up to these play-ins. I will say this though, it's going to be really hard to beat out in a lonely place, which I think is a masterpiece. I love that film. So I know people love Johnny Guitar as well, and it absolutely could end up being my vote, but it will be a hard it will be a hard battle because of how strongly I feel about In a Lonely Place. Fair enough. Let me give you a, a few from my list here that were easy. Famously, I don't think it was on the show. It's just your letterbox page. You're you're not a fan of the African Queen. I'm gonna say it was oh. an easy one for me, though, Josh. I don't I don't love that film. I don't revere it the way I think maybe a lot of people do, but I like it. I like it more than you. And I also like it more than Sabrina, which is the play-in matchup here. And yeah, I say that as someone who adores Billy Wilder, Sabrina is not one of my favorite Wilder films. I do think African Queen is the more essential bogey watch there. Yeah, I just struggled. I got I to gotta revisit the African Queen because I'm such an outlier on that one. But the relationship between Bogart and Hepburn, even the performances of, of two actors who I revere and like and just about everything else, I just found it so grating. I'm with you on Sabrina. I think it's good. You know, it's it's definitely one of Wilder's more sugary efforts, let's say. But yeah, g- give me Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. She's the best thing about Sabrina, actually, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which makes this kind of an easy vote for me. Well, that's a perfect transition to another one that I thought was quite easy. Both films that were part of film spotting marathons, one with you, one with Sam. I like Hepburn quite a bit in Funny Face, but if I'm choosing between an over the hill Fred Astaire or an in his prime 
Gene Kelly dancing to I Got Rhythm. This isn't a choice in the Paris musicals. In American Paris, I know it's not fashionable to like this film. I seem to see a lot of people taking it down a peg whenever it does come up, which isn't a ton. It's not like there's an American Paris you know, Twitter feed devoted to it, but it's a clear choice for me to go with Paris. Adam Kempinar, did you say Over the Hill, Fred Astaire, yeah. Funny Face? Yes. He's, he's older, and certainly the age gap with Hepburn is, is a problem. A problem. Uh-huh. He is not over the hill. He's, he's got some wonderful moments. <laughs> he's not Gene Kelly. Face. This, this is a perfect follow-up to African Queen because I, I didn't realize there were others like me, but I have never liked an American in Paris. It's so garishly aggressive. And actually, Kelly, I think, is forcing it in a lot of his scenes in that film. And he has, you know, I'm I'm not going to go as far as you went and disparage such a great talent. He has great <laughs> moments as well. But yeah, this was yeah. an easy one for me going the opposite direction. So t- two, two polls here. We've both found easy for diametrically opposed reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here's, here's one. I'd be surprised if you didn't agree with me, but I also don't know for sure if you've seen, well, you surely have because it was a big movie a few years ago, a new version of it. And you probably did your homework. The Hollywood matchup, very easy for me to go Mm. with Minnelli and the bad and the beautiful over a star is born 54. And I like a star is born 54. Yeah. We're in agreement here. I mean, and a star is born. It has the longer legacy. I wouldn't be so I'm almost confident it will win this play and matchup. Judy Garland, also some great moments in it, but I'm with you. When we saw The Bad and Beautiful, I forget what marathon that was for. The Minnelli, right? It was Minnelli. It was, the Minnelli. Yeah. it was our best picture, both of us. There you go. I mean, just mm-hmm. self-referentially infatuated with Hollywood filmmaking, but in this completely rapturous way, especially in comparison with The Star is Born, I would say, and the filmmaking particularly. And, and another great Gloria Graham performance in yeah. The Bad and the Beautiful. You've got that. So yeah, this one easy for me. We're we're back in alignment here, Adam. It's very early in the voting, but and it's very close. But you'll be happy to know that Bad and the Beautiful right now is in a slight lead. Okay. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we've got some voters who followed along with that Manelli marathon. So a couple more titles here, a couple more tough matchups. Douglas Sirk's a tough one. I mean, I have an answer. I voted, and I am going with the one we saw more recently here as part of our marathon, it was our sight and sound marathon, right? Films that are on the top 100, the recent poll. That but sounds that we hadn't right. Seen. Yeah. We saw Imitation of Life. You know, all that heaven allows, they're both essential Cirque. They're both essential Hollywood melodramas. And I am a fan of both. But I do think what Imitation takes on in, in terms of race, gender, class, everything is remarkable and and for me it's the greater achievement yeah it's and you know for me it is the recency bias to be to be honest with you because we did just watch imitation of life we're wowed by it i haven't seen i think i watched all that heaven allows in preparation for todd haynes far from heaven Mm -hmm. so quite a ways ago now and have not revisited it since maybe i'd feel differently if i did that but yeah with imitation of life fairly fresh in my mind it's the clear choice for me okay here's the last one for me we'll see if you have any more the film noir matchup's really tough. The Asphalt Jungle versus Gun Crazy. And I didn't think it would be tough. I was just going to go with my gut, remembering these are both films that were part of an early marathon with Sam, a film noir marathon. I thought Gun Crazy was 
the definite winner here. And that's partly because I remember very clearly what gun crazy is about. I remember specific shots from gun crazy, you know, mainly because Tarantino has aped a few of them over the years, like the one, the memorable one riding in the car. I went back and looked at the marathon and unless there was a mistake by me or one of our former PAs transferring over information from the, the old website, it says the asphalt jungle, which was Sam's best picture of the marathon. It says I gave the Asphalt Jungle four stars. I only gave Gun Crazy three. So I don't know how that's possible, but I'm abstaining only so long as I can revisit my notes from both films and try to figure out what's going on here because I thought for sure Gun Crazy was my pick, but maybe it's not. I can't call you crazy because just looking on my website, I have Gun Crazy getting two and a half out of four stars. So liked it, Mm. but didn't go. I, I didn't rave about it. Either And then here's my confession. Asphalt Jungle is a blind spot for me that I wasn't able to rectify. So I can't speak to that or vote in this matchup. The last thing I I just want to note is that I'm really thrilled that you and Sam managed to do a Tati pairing, even if it is in the play-ins here. I feel like Jacques Tati is just a filmmaker that is not talked about as a master very much these days anymore. Maybe it's just a fashionable thing and he'll come back at some point. But that makes me sad because I just adore everything I've seen of his pretty much. And I would encourage people who haven't watched anything of his to take this opportunity to start with Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. That's, you know, an earlier film, a lighter film, I think, less ambitious than Mon Uncle. So I would definitely go with Mon Uncle in this poll. It's the larger achievement, uh, especially in terms of scale and, and scale. That's so much what Tati is about. But, you know, it's also Mon Uncle. I have a poster. One of the few movie posters I have in my house is, is of that. So, you know, it's not like it's one of my top 10 films of all time. It's one mm-hmm. I love, though, and the poster is pretty cool. So, so yeah. yeah, definitely check both those out if you've, if you've never explored Tati. Yeah, it's really sharp. I was just at your place and right next to your Reservoir Dogs poster. It's wonderful. It don't, looks so good. Don't believe I've ever, not even in college. Oh, I definitely did, did I in own college. Of our dogs poster. <laughs> you know I did. How dare you be smirched and apocalypse my now. reputation. <laughs> okay. Before Film Spotting Madness really gets underway, we each had a conspicuous 50s blind spot that we wanted to knock out. Yours is a film I talked about a little bit last week on our show when we were discussing Vim Vender's Perfect Days, a good film you should see out expanding to more screens here this weekend, I believe. I talked about it, though, mainly in the context of Tokyo Ga, which is a vendor's documentary that's all about Ozu and all about the film, largely Tokyo Story. And it's a film, Tokyo Ga, that I have been meaning to watch since the early 90s when I became a cinephile and I had a VHS, like a burned, pirated VHS copy of it. Tokyo Story, though, the film that really inspired Tokyo Ga is a movie that, according to the 2022 Sight and Sound Critics Poll, is the number four film of all time. In 2012, it was number three, five and oh two. Back in 92, it was number three. So it's been in the top five going back here, you know, four polls, Josh. And I remember having to watch it in film school and and being grateful that I watched it. And then I remember watching it as part of a marathon here on the show with Sam in the very early days. What did you make of Tokyo Story from 1953? Loved it. Just beautiful. So patient in the filmmaking and the storytelling. Serene, wise, 
I mean, all the sorts of things you would expect of a movie that has that sort of reputation. Despite that reputation, I'm sure there are listeners who, like me, had, you know, needed to catch up with it. Uh, so just a little bit of the plot here. Very simple. It's this older couple, uh, retirees. They live hours away from Tokyo. Uh, they're basically, I think they're living in Western Japan. And so they have to take this long train journey to the city to visit their adult children, who I believe they haven't seen in a couple of years, something like that. They have a pair of grandchildren at this point. And it's it's sort of a family reunion movie. What they find when they get there is that their kids have busy lives. And though they've been anticipating this arrival and they're very polite, they're clearly inconvenienced as well. And in trying to fit their parents in their schedules, they often kind of shuffle them off to someone else or have to cancel plans. And and so this this couple, beautifully played by Chishu Ryu and Chiko Higashiyama, uh, hopefully I've got that close to right uh, in the pronunciation, but yeah, just beautifully played in terms of that patience and that serenity I was talking about. It very much matches Ozu's filmmaking style, you know, where he's he's letting the, I think the camera, I think I caught it moving maybe once in this movie, letting the camera rest there at that familiar height, the lower height of where his characters are sitting on the floor and being unobtrusive and just letting these family dynamics play out while this couple, they, they simply, you know, they smile, they try not to make too much fuss. So, you know, it's a somewhat, I found it to be a simpler movie than something like Late Spring, another Ozu I saw recently or one I saw years ago, Floating Weeds. And to that degree, I, at this point, I maybe like those better. And I think I like an early silent film of his, I Was Born, but the best of all, actually. So so it's weird coming into the perceived, you know, the, the accepted masterpiece of his. And there was just something about the matter of factness that surprised me. And, and that's not a fault of it at all. But I think with its reputation, I might have expected to be more instantly wowed. But I don't know that that's what that's not how Ozu operates. I've only seen those four films, so I only have a small understanding. But it was this sort of humility of the picture that ultimately won me over. And I've and I've got to say, Adam, too, it's if it wasn't that immediate film watching experience, watch this Friday. We're recording on a Monday night. I can't tell you how many times over the weekend I thought of this couple as if they were real people mm. wondering how they were doing. Yeah. It, it was it yeah. was like, so, oh, I wonder where the I wonder where they are now. That's the Ozu magic. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, well, first of all, you idiot, that was a movie. <laughs> and second of all, you know, you know where they are by the end of the film. But maybe that's the best way to describe sort of the, yeah, as you say, the Ozu magic, the, the way it seeps stuff that seems so commonplace and unremarkable mm -hmm. seeps into your bones and you realize how true and important it is. Yeah. And Chishi Ryu is an actor or the actor in Vendor's documentary. He he finds, he seeks out now in 1983 when he's filming the documentary and finds him to talk to him about his experience working with Ozu and, and kind of embarrasses him actually because Vendors is so overflowing with praise for him mm. as an actor. He, he reveres him as this incredible screen performer. And for Ryu, it's like, I, I was just doing my job, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which, which kind really of fits the character. Approach. Like he's yeah. also the father in, in late spring. I, I, I and, and so it, it fits kind of the, the serenity that he brings to that performance too. So that makes sense that there would be some quality of that him of him in real life. Well, I'm glad 
that you get to cross that off your list, Josh. I know it was keeping you up at nights that you hadn't seen Tokyo Story. I get you to go. I get to get go to rest. that list I have on Letterbox, my bl- my official blind spotting uh-huh. list, and cross it off. There you go. So for me, the film I chose that I thought was just my blind spot, but as you noted earlier, you haven't seen it either. You you infamously here are not a big fan of another fifties courtroom drama that's going to be much higher seated in film spotting madness, 12 angry men. I'm a little worried that you're going to find some reason to, to criticize Otto Preminger's anatomy of a murder from 1959. It's got Jimmy Stewart as a semi-retired upper peninsula, Michigan lawyer who takes the case of an army Lieutenant played by Ben Gazzara who murdered a local innkeeper. There's no question about his murdering him after his wife, who's played by Lee Remick says that, the innkeeper raped her. George C. Scott plays Claude Dancer. He's he's a big city lawyer. He's sent in all the way from Lansing in the attorney general's office to prosecute the case. For me, maybe not, maybe not on that level of Tokyo story in terms of how people feel about it. I'm pretty sure it's not anywhere on the sight and sound list, but it's Otto Preminger, six Oscar nominations, that famous title sequence. It's a Jimmy Stewart classic. And when I looked in preparation for madness and putting together the list, you look at rankings, various rankings online of the best films of the fifties. And this is usually in that 20 to 40 range. That's why for me, it was the one I wanted to see. I also wanted to see it because it definitely was. I mean, I I think I've seen at least one or two comments from Justine Trier talking about anatomy of a fall. And the title is very deliberately a reference to this film, Anatomy of a Murder. And they do share some of the same DNA, for sure. Really more in terms of, even though the courtroom situations are very different, the legal systems are very different, there's still, of course, this reliance on narrative. There's a reliance on storytelling and whether or not you can get someone to believe certain things and how you frame it versus let's say just the facts. So there's definitely some shared DNA, even if this is a film that doesn't have anywhere close to the same level of ambiguity surrounding it as anatomy of a fall does. Embarrassingly, Josh, a little bit. I think this is my first Lee Remick film other than seeing her. I looked at her IMDb today, other than remembering her from the omen. She's terrific here, really disarming with her sweetness, but you also recognize that she, she comes off a little naive, but she uses that naivete to her advantage Gazara, as you would expect, is intense and a little sinister as the man on trial for murder. And he says in his first scene with Stewart, something like, well, I've got the unwritten law on my side. You know, I'm I'm justified. I killed him because he raped my wife. And that may or may not be true that he's got that on his side. But Gazara does not do you any favors. He, he almost defies you to like him. You were the district attorney around here, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Ten years. What's your experience as a defense lawyer? Not very much. How do I know you can handle my case? Well, I guess you don't know. Shall we talk about it? I suppose so. Well, now, come on, Lieutenant. Don't be so bored. You know, it might very well be that no lawyer can handle your case. If you mean getting off scot-free. You seem to be forgetting Barney Quill raped my wife. I have the unwritten law on my side. The unwritten law is a myth, Lieutenant. There is no such thing as the unwritten law. Jimmy Stewart, this is really one of his best performances. I'm used to seeing Stewart, I think we all are, be 
a little mischievous on screen, but there's a calculated, cynical mischievousness to this character that was new to me, new to me watching Stuart. Even in Rear Window, there's a moral righteousness to that character that I associate with Jimmy Stewart, and that's pretty much completely gone here with this lawyer. Sam, actually, I have to say, I, I saw his review on Letterboxd, and he says it so well. I hadn't thought of this, but you know, Remick and Gazara, who he agrees to, are also great in this film. They're they're fifties actor studio method actors, and if I didn't know it watching it, thinking about it now, you can see it. You know, you can see that kind of depth that they're bringing and the planning that they they clearly brought, the preparation they brought to these characters. And as Sam puts it, he says they're terrific, but Stuart, the actor, outmaneuvers them with as much old school skill as his country lawyer character does in the courtroom. And it really is this case of maybe, I have no idea what the dynamic was like on set, but you can imagine, if not conflict, a difference, a difference in the approaches of classic Hollywood actor Jimmy Stewart and sure. these method folks, right? And he he gives back to them more than more than they can handle. Stewart is that good in this film. And Preminger does great things with framing and focus, some really fun stuff with framing and focus in particular. That's where the the mischievousness comes into play in a little more of a cat and mouse kind of way in the courtroom. My sense too that this was true, was validated by a little bit of research today. It's quite progressive for its time. There's a real frankness about the language surrounding the rape and the legal scenarios that aren't noteworthy at all today, but in 54 were startling. And I found online that Variety back in 54 said that the film had words in it that had never before been heard in American films due to the motion picture production code. And here are the words, Josh, you want to take a guess? They're words like contraceptive and climax. And one you don't hear too often these days, spermatogenesis. Earbuffs. Yeah. Of course, there's also some very antiquated thinking on display, like how basically the George C. Scott character, well, it's not basically, he blames Remick for getting raped because of how she dressed that night and how she acted that night, calling attention to herself. And Stuart, the lawyer, the character handles that pretty well in terms of how he then responds to that in court. But there's really no sense that anyone is batting an eye at all about it being completely absurd and unacceptable to put her at fault for being sexually assaulted. And then here's my last thing that I love that I had no idea about coming into this film. And just just humor me, Josh, if it sounds a little bit self-serving at first. I see in the credits and Joseph N. Welch. And I'm like, well, there's only one Joseph Welch, and I even think it's N that I'm familiar with. And he's not an actor. And even though it it doesn't seem like a terribly uncommon name, I'm like, could that be the same guy? I don't remember him ever being in movies, but Joseph Welch, turns out it is the one I was thinking of. Small, small town Iowa kid. Went to my alma mater. One of those grads, we have a few famous ones, including Gary Cooper, but Joseph Welch is one I always point to as, as an alum who I'm really proud to have shared some of the same you know, space with on campus. Grinnell College grad, Harvard Law grad, he was chief counsel for the Army during the Army McCarthy hearings. And the moment that everyone still regards as the turning point in McCarthyism, the point when public sentiment started to shift against McCarthy was Welch's admonishment to him when he says, 
have you no sense of decency, sir? Sure. At long last, have you left no sense of decency? See, you know it. You didn't know who it was probably by name, but that's the line. It's this incredible line. He began the admonishment with another great line. Until this moment, Senator, I think I've never really gauged your cruelty or recklessness. So I always liked that decency line for its impact and putting McCarthy in his place, but also just its concise, eloquent potency. And it's eloquence that wasn't scripted since he says it in reaction to a sudden attack by McCarthy on a lawyer in Welch's Boston legal office. So off the cuff, in the heat of the moment, that's what Welch came up with to challenge McCarthy. I could only dream about coming up with a line like that in the moment. But I love the moment, too, because I can't help but long for the days when someone with intelligence and rationality and just plain common sense could actually say something like that on TV and sway public opinion against someone in something nefarious. Well, he's the judge in this movie. It's his only acting performance ever. And I guess his line was, well, first he said, I'll do it. He was approached and he said, I'll do it, but only if my wife can also be in the film. So it's her only <laughs> film credit, I believe. And, and she must be in a very small role. I don't know which character she plays. But he also joked that it's the only way he'll ever be a judge. So I guess I'll do it. But he brings to this judge character the same intelligence, rationality, and common sense, this kind of Midwestern folksy common sense. That's what he brings to this judge. It's actually one of the most fun elements of this film. And you can watch it and feel like this person seems like a non-professional actor and yet is delivering beats and delivering humor the way you would expect a very seasoned pro to deliver them. And it's such an inspired casting choice to have this guy who was this, this modicum of, like I said, rationality and common sense for America not too long before this. And they put him up there as this judge, as they're wading through all this difficult material and trying to make heads or tails of what really happened and who was justified. And was he insane when he did it? All of those things. You've got this, wonderfully impartial, wise judge in Joseph Welch. It was just such a treat to watch him on the, on the bench. I apologize for my client, Your Honor. Yet his outburst is almost excusable since the prosecution has seen fit to put a felon on the stand to testify against an officer in the United States Army. Your Honor, I don't know who was the worst offender, Mannion or his lawyer. We're close to the end. In the name of heaven, let's have peace and courtesy for these last few hours. Mr. Dancer, you will continue your interrogation without comment. Mr. Beagler, you will not sound off at every opportunity, and the defendant will remain seated in his chair and keep his mouth shut. Now go ahead. Mr. Miller. All right, anatomy of a murder. I will have to get to it at some point. Can you tell me this right now, though? And maybe you can't because it depends on how the play-in votes go. Do you know what it's paired up against and what Tokyo Story is paired up against? Can we can we say Ooh. how we're going to vote or is it too early? <laughs> well, it's funny you should say this, Josh, because, you know, I, I of course, as as one of the key members, I'm a very important person on the selection committee. Some, I, might, some I, might say you hold 50 percent of the power. I hold at least, yeah, 50 percent of the power. I, I might just have access mm. to the bracket that is not that is not public. This and, is what I'm hoping for. Yes. OK. Well, as we were talking about all this, Sam just sent an update to the bracket. He has anatomy of a murder going up against, I'm not going to say it, but you can probably guess it 
and a lot of people listening will probably guess it after I say it's one of those film spotting films from the 1950s. It's going to get crushed. Anatomy is, is of there, a Murder is there stands a, no chance. A singing scene in this film. There may be a singing scene okay. in this film. Now we'll see. We'll see if this this holds out as we still have some work to do before the bracket sure. is officially launched. I'm going to say this about Tokyo Story. I think based on its competition, it's going to make it to round one easily. But based on what you said about it, which was very positive, but maybe not, you know, one of my all-time favorite films, I actually think the movie going up against it, I could see this being a surprise Josh Larson upset. Oh, no. I think it's possible. Okay. All right. Well, actually, now that I think about it, I don't know how you feel about these two films. Why it's going don't you up just tell me? Why don't you just, you know, give listeners, it's, okay, what does it hurt? Okay. It's going up against the winner of the 50s sci-fi play-in. Oh. Body Snatchers or The Day the Earth Stood Still. Which wasn't, you know, like both films, but was an easy one for me, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is. I knew you liked that film. Yeah, it's, I, I, I think it's, you know. I think it's monumental, really, in terms of its influence and what it was doing for the time. Ooh. I mean, this is it. This is this is why we use the term madness, because who in mm-hmm. their right mind would ever in their right mind? think of these two films in uh-huh. tandem? Tokyo yeah. Story and The Day the Earth Stood Still. If The Day the Earth Stood Still beats out Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, which I don't think will happen, actually. I, I, think, I think Body Snatchers has... You know, Day of the Earth Stood Still is a little square. It's a little square, Adam, compared to something like Body Snatchers. Well, I think you're going to be voting for Tokyo Story. Let me put it that way. <sighs> okay. So I may <laughs> I may not have to wrestle over this because... Uh, you yeah. may not have if to. If Body Snatchers gets in, then it's easy for me in Tokyo Story. And honestly, despite that Theremin score, you know, Bernard Herman, despite Gort, uh-huh. I think I'd pro- I would probably... Uh, uh. Yeah, let's just hope I don't have to choose. <laughs> Anatomy of a Murder is available VOD. Tokyo Story is on the Criterion channel and Max and also available VOD. You can look forward to voting for or against those titles and more next week in the first round of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1950s and subject to change disclaimers all over that. Maybe none of those matchups happen. We still have days left before the tournament begins, Josh. A lot more calls between me and Sam yet to take place oh and those will be happening up until yes the polls go live so yes noon next monday more information at filmspotting.net slash madness that's our show if you want to connect with us on facebook twitter or letterboxd you can find adam at film spotting i'm at larson on film for show t-shirts or other merch go to filmspotting.net slash shop Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. You'll get a weekly newsletter, you'll get monthly bonus shows, and you can also get access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In that archive, you could get more Dune. You could listen to our original 2021 review. That's episode 846. Or you could go back to 801. We did an eight from 84 series here on the show. We talked about David Lynch's Dune. That was a first time watch for both of us. Filmspottingfamily.com. Out in wide release, speaking of the cones, we have a movie directed and co-written by Ethan Cohn 
Drive Away Dolls, starring Margaret Qualley, Beanie Feldstein, Coleman Domingo, Matt Damon, and Pedro Pascal. Quite a cast. Uh, uh. What are you saying? You don't like some of those performers? I'm saying I've seen Drive Away Dolls. Oh, okay. You have. Well, we'll move on. Tenet re-released Christopher Nolan's film back in theaters. Limited release here in Chicago. You can see Stop Motion. Curious to see this one about a stop motion animator struggling to control her demons after the loss of her overbearing mother. She embarks upon the creation of a film that becomes the battleground for her sanity. The Peasants is also out from the writer-directors of the Best Animated Feature-nominated film, Loving Vincent. It's a live-action film animated by oil painters. Curious about both of those films. Definitely curious about Drive Away Dolls, despite your sounds that you made. <laughs> the sounds emanating how many from stars, your microphone. How many stars would you uh, translate those sounds into? <laughs> I mean, based on that, I'm I'm thinking on the Larson four-point Larson on film scale, that's, yeah. that's a one and a half. Uh, it'll get more than that. I haven't sat okay. down and written anything yet, so I, I don't really know for sure, but I'm, I think it'll get more than that. We may okay. well, no have more than to two. discuss. We may have to. Our Oscars special, hopefully, is coming next week with Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. We'll tell you who will win. Ignore that. Who should win. Pay attention to that. Who should have been nominated. That's the most important part. There you go. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.